Yeah, I think that's a, you know, one of the neat things about being a professor is you, you the biggest thing is I've never done anything for money where somebody will say, if you refer this to me, never. I've never, ever taken a nickel because all that I have is my reputation. But it's, and it's wonderful to be in service. And this is the other part of being a creative person to say, let me help you think through this and let me refer you to somebody who I think can help you right? This is the person I would go to if I needed help. And then, you know, and what happens is I, I do believe the world's a good place. And it doesn't mean that they're going to come back. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part four of the Creative Mindset mini-series with Jeff DeGraff and Stanley DeGraff. We've, we've covered a lot so far. For this part four, can you talk about this concept, see one, do one, teach one? Yeah, one of the things that occurred to me very early is that creativity has a lot of tradecraft. What do you mean by that is you look at Masons, goldsmiths, painters, and it's as if we have this very lofty kind of artsy idea about how they do things, but they're all apprenticed. They're all apprenticed. And I know I was. I know that Rudolf Arnheim and Robert Quinn and C.K. Prahalad apprenticed me. You know, I was I had a great great people, right? Show me the trade. And so I started thinking very early on about how do we actually learn to be good and and beyond good, great at being creative. And the way we do that is we watch people who are masterful at being creative, not average, but masterful. That's why I think we should, my metaphor for this in building the Innovatorium Institute for Innovation was the Juilliard, the Juilliard School. The Juilliard School isn't teaching you where your fingers go or how to read music. The Juilliard is you were the best pianist in Louisville. You know, now we're going to go to finishing school and we're going to learn how to play Rachmaninoff's fifth. And then we're going to learn how to play 20 different genres of music. And eventually you're going to be composer, right? But this is not for, uh, this this is for people who are on the path who are going to develop true expertise. So C1 is the first piece. And my hero for all this was a very famous American philosopher named John Dewey, who helped create a school of thought, which is the most American school of philosophy called pragmatism, right? And Dewey said the way in which people learn to do things is they, they watch, just like primates do, just like crows do. We watch somebody do it. And he said the next thing that happens is we have to actually try it under the watchful eye of these masters. And that's why when we look at places where there's an enormous amount of unbelievable creativity. We call this the geography of genius. And the reason is there are these people who are together and they're helping each other. This is, you know, this is the Armory Show in Paris in 1918. You know, this is the Edinburgh Enlightenment. This is Athens during the Golden Age, right? You pick it. And finally, he said, what happens is the people who become the experts have to become the teachers. And you'll never see a better example of this than in healthcare. So you'll see some person, he came from an Ivy League school, he comes to Michigan. <clears throat> what does he do the first year? He follows a doctor around, a famous doctor. Follows him around like a little puppy. Maybe you've had him come to your, your room when you're getting an exam or something. It's a little awkward. Then the next thing is during surgery, you know, she gets to she gets to open the patient, you know, and the, the chief, the, the the chief cardiovascular surgery is overlooking her. And she's doing it the right. And then eventually she becomes the, the attending physician. And over time, she becomes the head of thoracic surgery or whatever it is. And that's why the, in these places, 
healthcare is so good, so much better than in other places. Well, the see one, do one, teach one part is the is the kind of the final piece if you want to be a great creative person. You know, are you apprenticing yourself to someone who is a master creator? Have you seen what real creativity is like? You know, whether it's, you know, going to, I think about Quincy Jones. I was watching a documentary on Quincy Jones, who I love. And Quincy Jones talked about how he had to go to Europe and learn how to compose classical music. And how, in fact, when he did that, Frank Sinatra asked him to write his first sort of interesting score for it was a very good year and you know how terrified he was and then the last part of his career has been what he's the guy that discovered all the great new composers right he's a incredible guy see one do one teach one is what you're going to see in artistic communities over and over and over again so you know it's funny i, I took the very traditional route to mergers and acquisitions right i'm an art school dropout <laughs> <laughs> i'm an art school dropout who moved to southern california to be a surfer my newlywed wife. I called her, called my fiance and said, Hey, do you want to get married during finals week? I'm quitting school. <laughs> so we got married a, month, a week early, got married during finals week. Anyways, and uh, ended up getting headhunted over to city because they wanted somebody who could actually speak entrepreneur talk to entrepreneurs say like, my job is called these CEOs mid market. So under 500 million a year revenue, right? Hey, we think we have a few different private equity groups. We could get to bid against each other to buy you. Do you think you want to sell? Right. And I think about the the art world and, you know, I, I do it for fun. I do all the, you know, there's a lot of design things I still get to do and I, I paint for fun. And I look at like such great technicians who are not very creative and their stuff just blends in with the crowd, right? And then I look at the people without enough technical ambition and it takes like a really good art salesperson in New York to, to tell you why this piece is important. Because your average person cannot appreciate the aesthetic value, right? Like I tell you, if there's any good salespeople, it's it's those some of those you know fine art, <laughs> abstract painting, gallery owners in New York, right? Okay, but but you look at these like these really exceptional people that actually change the world of art, and there is this there's this mashup, right, of the an, an amount of technical ability to create aesthetic value that doesn't require, you know, large bottles of champagne and amazing salesperson to, to tell you you want it, right? But, you know, is has broken the mold. And I guess my question here is, what about when you're inventing something new? So like, you know, for us, for our fund, we're saying, you know, what's one way we could not blend in with a million other funds, you know, even just real estate funds, there's so many real estate funds out there, right? So we're saying, well, if we try to build a media company, kind of like our own mini Bloomberg, right? And if we, we offer courses and consulting and stuff, and we are the only investment fund that will actually try to help entrepreneurs make enough extra money to buy passive income from us, like, we don't see any of our competitors. That's just going to sound like too much work for most of them. And besides, most of our competitors are like a finance guy, they're not real entrepreneurs, right? So Knowing that there are so many things that we're stealing, like we're like, we're stealing this from these guys, this from these guys, this from these guys, and we're tr trying to mash it up together. Do you have any thoughts on, on how we can, how we can do this? See one, do one, yeah. teach one when we're like kind of building the airplane yeah, there's, in place. But there's two parts to this. This is like my Juilliard metaphor. There, there, you worked at city, you did all these other things. So you already did see one and do one. You already learned how to play rocks fifth, right? You already learned how to play these different genres. So you're past that. 
you're now the part at the Juilliard where you're expected to compose music. Now, the problem with composing mm. music is twofold. One, the composing music, when you get to that phase, it's no longer about the customer. It's about the creative endeavor that you're at. It's, it's not a pull form of innovation. It's a push form, right? So what you're doing is you're trying to be imaginative and hoping that you can then find where this needs to land, right? Right. So this is the first part. So understand that anytime that you're new, you're going to do that. If you try and do this in conventional ways, think about Stravinsky's when he did the Firebird. What was it, like 1910 or whatever the year was? They threw chairs on the stage. I don't know what he was thinking about. Why did he think normal people were going to get this, right? And then eventually he found where it went and Diagola, and they made a ballet out of it and it worked, right? So the second part is whenever you do something new, you've got to create a bucket so people can understand what it is, where it goes. Think about the 80s when New Age music came around. You know, every, New Age music had been around forever. They just didn't have a bucket for it. So no one ever sold anything because nobody had a handle for what the thing was. Multimedia in the night, you know, you know, there's a million of these, right? So the notion is whatever you're doing, you need to find a way to create something bigger than what you're doing that explains what you're doing as a box that people can walk around with, right? So when I built the Innovatrium, when Stanny and I built the Innovatrium, we remember we were, we built this three years before the Stanford D School. You know, the WeWork people had come out early on and see how we did a lot of this stuff, right? So we were pretty early. When, when people would ask, what are we doing? I would say, we're, we're building the Juilliard School. That was my metaphor. And they'd go, oh, and I'd say, so not everybody gets to go. You know, we're doing the creative work that the organization can't. So you're finding boxes that they would understand. And then event what eventually happened was other people understood the box as much as they did the name of this. So, you know, I we still own the trademark to it. We coined the term, right? But the notion is what became more powerful than the Innovatrium was the box of these, you know, collaborative, you know, these collaborative communities, what are called coins, collaborative open innovation networks, right? So that becomes what I think the next phase of where you're going to be is, do people have, have you provided enough thoughtware for them to figure out, instead of the parts of all the different things you're doing, collectively what that is? Almost goes back to analytical thinking. Yeah. I'm just going to say, it's like metaphors. Mm, tell me more about that. Well, if, if you were using... Whenever you're doing something new and there's a lot of parts, you have to, metaphors are, this is like this. This is like that. That's your brain naturally does. So what you're doing is like what? So when you say, you know, it's not just that, we're also learning how to do it. We're also learning, is it like opening your own pizza shop? Is it like uh, learning? You know, I, yeah, I, I took some notes as you were writing just now. And I thought, you know, more than an investment fund, like I almost see it more like, you know, I've been in, in these like CEO clubs, like think like, I'm sure you're familiar with YPO or EO or these kind of things, right? Yeah. And so I think about like, I hung out with the same people over and over and I built trust with all these people. They weren't consultants. They were like my peers, right? But they really had something to offer. And I think about like all the consulting that we've done kind of under the Greystoke umbrella. And so often people need help with very similar things, namely increasing sales, right? And, and I think like, what if we don't frame ourselves as an investment firm? What if we were like this, like, you know, this community for millionaire entrepreneurs who want to get financial peace of mind before they try to go to the next level? Or, you know, what if it was like, 
what if we framed ourselves more as the community and the investment fund just happened to be the economic engine of it? Because I don't need to make money or I don't need to make so much money off consulting or CEO trips or any of that. That stuff can almost be like loss leaders because we make up for it by building enough trust. They become investors or something. And just like, instead of anyways, no, I, like I don't know. Any reactions if we do to that? Something simple like we're going to go to spring training and we're going to or boot camp or whatever. Those are all kind of overwrought. <clears throat> I think what you're really talking about is something different. I think what you're really talking about is an extension of coaching coaches, right? You're talking about that what you're going to help them do is put together their community. That's what you're doing. I would say in the world of federations, the world where we're no longer competing individually, we're going to help you build their... This is what I'm doing for the United States government with how do we put together all of the top research universities, all the, all, you know, the government's billions of dollars of investments in tech companies, how do we put together a community, right? So instead of you putting it together, you're teaching them how to put together their community. That's what you're doing. Which, which honestly, they would love advice from a real entrepreneur who they feel like is in a similar, you know, actually has some credibility for them because they're making that at least that much kind well, of money, oh, you're, right? What about peer-to-peer? -peer? What about treating it like Alcoholics Anonymous? I mean, one of the things that happens there, we always say that our what our business, the Innovatrium, does is it focuses on creativity, but in three ways, creativity and culture, creativity and competency, and creativity and communities. Well, the hardest thing for an entrepreneur is to build a community. So when we went in and did the X Prize, like in Detroit, so we were the ones that sort of launched all that and did all that. The biggest challenge wasn't that people weren't creative. The biggest challenge is they didn't know anybody, right? They didn't know, they didn't know how mm. to know people. They didn't know how to know the right people. Right. So it's Danny really ran all this. So she's the one that said, well, you know, why don't we teach them how to do things? And then why don't we connect them to an ecosystem here? And, you know, some of these kids went to them afterwards, went to MIT and, you know, they're doing great. <laughs> but the issue was what they didn't know how to do. They didn't know how to build a community, the right community. And part of doing well, a lot of this is you kind of figure some of that out. What I love about this idea is. And, you know, I'm going to have to bounce this off John so he tells me if I'm allowed to tell Nick, right? <laughs> but what I, what I love about this is, like, I'm not trying to make – I'm not really trying to make any money in the coaching business or the consulting business or the training industry, right? So if I could train these millionaire entrepreneurs how to be coaches for other millionaire entrepreneurs and they get the mutual benefit of the peer coaching each other and then I facilitate them actually meeting each other – because I don't need to make a profit off it, I don't need to protect intellectual property. I don't need to. I don't need to control the whole situation, right? But like you said, if I can, if I can facilitate them learning higher level skill sets that they're teaching to each other, but we get this credit for putting them all together and helping them raise their game, and and it's really fun to be a teacher, right? A lot of people haven't been you know, let me, a teacher let me before. Push, let me way of putting it. let me push back a little bit here and say. Okay. What's the number one problem that big consulting firms have right now? The number one problem. The number one problem is the way in which they've know. made money historically, right? Tax and, and, you know, and, and, you know, audit, things like that. Well, there were, there were about 12,000 companies in 2000 that were publicly traded. There's less than 4,000 today. Private equity's taken over everything. So that market's drying up, right? So what's the biggest challenge is people everywhere, any consulting company of scale has to figure out where the next market is. And the only way to do that is to know a winner before anybody else knows where there's a winner. They're a winner school. So to me, where the money would be made is you're training people, but then you're also, you've got a line of sight. You're prospecting for people who can actually fund what you're doing. In a sense, it's like the old, well, there's old models for this that existed in the 50s. But to me, you're, there's a, 
there's a link in the chain that's missing, right? You got the big consul- the big consulting company that don't know how to prospect. You got all the VCs on the other end that have portfolios. Nobody's a Yenta. Nobody's a matchmaker, right? Who's the matchmaker? And if the only person who's going to know what that is, is somebody who's worked with them. This is why so many tech transfer organizations are, are worthless. They don't know how to do that. Some of them do, you know, the Stanford Research Institute is really good at it. Wisconsin, the War Foundation, there's a handful of them that are really good, but most of them aren't. And because they, they, what they're lacking is, remember, innovation is highly situationally specific. So if you're an expert at, you know, building, you know, jet fighters, you're not an expert at biotechs. So the issue is the only way to know who knows is to have them somehow in a community situation where you're interacting with them. Let me ask you about this, because... As I'm thinking about that, I actually really see where your vision's going there. In my my thought also is at the other end of the spectrum. If I was trying to create a community for folks who their business is actually going extremely well, but they just have anxiety that they've got too many eggs in one basket, so they want to buy some other passive income that's unrelated, yep. right? Or or they had the big exit and now they've got a whole whack they've got a whole whack of cash, but they don't have income anymore, and you know they're telling themselves they're going to buy some a plane and a beach house and. <laughs> And do some angel investing, but they also need just like playing, like keep the lights on. My they just need income. Do you yep, know what I mean? I do. Right. Trying to create. What if I was trying to create a community for those folks who, you know, they did get funded and and it worked, and now now they're at this new phase of like, well, I'd like to have some money I don't have to worry about, and now I might actually consider like the insane level of entrepreneurship, the like you know the kind of stuff that yeah, Wall Street Journal how, wants to write this about. This all started, right? Jess. This is like uh, you know, incentive. This is Match. dot com, seekers and solvers, right? That's all it is. You know, you're 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 single. You're looking for somebody. Somebody's an intermediary, and they're helping put those people together. Think of it this way. This is a this is a metaphor I'm going to give you, and it's a it's a it's an outrageous one. It doesn't matter whether Michigan or Ohio State wins. The bookie always makes money. Mm. who's the bookie who's the matchmaker who's the right and how is that done and it's whoever can bring those communities together and has a meaningful 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 insight as to as to what those things are capable of doing and that comes down to see one do one teach one are you the this is this is why when I have a doctoral student, you know what happens is if the if the if somebody's looking for a doc for a junior professor, they're going to call a handful of people, these white hot nodes, these connector people. Is this making sense? And you're going to say, is this person right for this situation? Right. So maybe it's a scouting report. That's what I meant by sort of the the you know it's a it's a you know farm team. You know, who is this person? So maybe just the process that you created some kind of scouting report of them. It gave you a good line of sight as to what those people do. So I think you got a number of angles here, right? A number of angles on which you could look at how to make money. You know, the funny thing about Domino's, people got this all wrong. You didn't make money on pizza. You made money in the commissary system by selling the franchisees dough and cheese and things like that. And you made (laughs) like 1.4%, but you were selling enormous volumes of stuff. So, so, you know, people were really confused. How can you sell the pizza so cheap and all this? Well, the money's this other thing. You're thinking about this the wrong way. This is my thinking thing again. The money's over here. Well, you know, what is interesting about that is I think, you know, so there's out here in Utah, you know, Pluralsight just went public. I think they went maybe like $4 billion market cap last year. You know, SAP just bought Qualtrics for $8 billion and just like last week announced they're going to take them public. Like we've had... You know, we've had some bigger exits for, you know, what most people consider a flyover state, right? 
and and I think and then I think about my more you know less newsworthy friends who who made a ton but it wasn't didn't make the news right and there are these new decisions about like am I going to start a family office and what should we be doing tax planning wise and you know things that were always stuff that could be put off and it does make me think like if we could be the source of the best answers like you know law firms the best estate planners the you know north dakota trust experts they would they would beat the door down to be allowed access to our tribe yeah. and if we were super selective about only like not doing it for the money like only letting the really high quality people get access to them so it's like hey here's you normally have to pay this offshore tax accountant, $850 an hour, but you can come to this thing for free because of who you are. And then he's hoping you hire him afterwards or stuff like that. Like that matchmaker thing is interesting to me. If I, as long as, as long as it's quality, like as long as I'm protecting the interest of the entrepreneur and we are like gatekeepers to the service providers, then maybe, maybe it's actually valuable. We're like, uh, we're almost like free employees to sort through professionals for you. But you have a unique skill, you know, who knows? That's the thing. That's your moniker. We know who knows. And in a world of fake news and nonsense and, you know, let's look at your social media. Everybody now is a virologist or a military strategist or a macroeconomist, right? The guy who sat next to you in, in a biology class in 11th grade who couldn't even pass is now, you know, spouting out about how we should handle this whole thing, right? So we're in an era where actually knowing who knows is valuable. Who do you call? You know, I, yeah, I just connected with this guy, John Reed on LinkedIn randomly this week. Right. And we, we had this conversation, he's out in Newport beach. And if you want, you know, a million or 5 million of life insurance, kind of almost anybody can help you You go to the Hartford or something. Right. But if you're worth 250 million bucks and you want a hundred or $200 million policy, this is like a really unique situation. And they like, they're stacking, they're stacking companies on top of each other. And you have to analyze all the contracts to make sure none of them negate each other. And yep. like, right. But you know, he can create a huge amount of security and also have a lot less of that money go to taxes when you die, right? Your family actually benefits from your hard work. And he's a legitimate subject matter expert on it, right? And it's invaluable. I, I don't think a lot of people and know he's about getting that. Better right? deal on all of the insurance, so it's actually less than what it would cost you. And he's playing the float on the other end. Yeah, right. It's yes. He he's being creative and he's looking at the same situation. He's creativizing. He's looking at an inefficient system that basically could be exploited in a different way. And what'll happen is if he becomes very successful at this, what happens in the back office or the mid office. How he does this, the back office technology or the way that he looks at this, eventually that will become the front office thing. This is how, you know, this is how derivatives were created and how tax shelters in the, the, the Bahamas happened. And there were back office things at Morgan and places like that. So anytime you learn how to solve a problem, there's phase one of that where you make the retail off of that. And then there's phase two where you show other people how to solve the problem, which is actually more valuable than the first phase, which always throws people. Well, and to your point about coaching coaches, like if I don't need to make any money off that matchmaking, you know, then all of a sudden I have nothing beholden to the, to the planner, to the tax, to the insurance genius, right? And I can be, we could create the community where if you need to make this level of decisions, you can't exactly call your neighbor across the street because, because he doesn't do those things, Right. And when you call other professionals, you know, they're so contaminated with self-interest. You're constantly having to judge can, how much can I really believe or not? Or how much did I just buy his sales pitch, yep. right? Where if we could be like that central clearinghouse of, 
teaching entrepreneurs how to advise other entrepreneurs on what should you be doing for insurance, tax, estate planning, whatever. And then I just, you know, this happens to be brought to you by this investment firm, but there's these other like 19 things that I don't have any self-interest on. Maybe I can create goodwill. Yeah, I think that's a, you know, one of the neat things about being a professor is you, you, the biggest thing is I've never done anything for money where somebody will say, if you refer this to me, never, I've never, ever taken a nickel because all that I have is my reputation, but it's, and it's wonderful to be in service. This is the other part of being a creative person to say, let me help you think through this and let me refer you to somebody who I think can help you, right? This is the person I would go to if I needed help. And then, you know, and what happens is I, I do believe the world's a good place. And it doesn't mean that they're going to come back and do a deal with you. It doesn't mean that at all. But it just means what happens is you have a reputation as somebody who helps people in a creative way. Yeah, but if it was, yeah, but if it was genuine and it was non-transactional, right. you know, you think about this, like all, all other things being equal, we buy from people we yep. like. You know, that, you know, if I could have some faith in that and then I don't need this to be transactional and I'm just, like you said, trying to be of genuine service. But what you're, you know, at some point connected with is creative work. Part of the thing that doesn't scale, talent doesn't scale. You don't believe that. Look at a five star restaurant or look at a left handed relief pitcher. It doesn't scale. Right. They're one of they're one. They're diamond in the rough. So the notion is, if you're able to creativize, if you're able to look at a business and in an hour creativize how that business will work, right? That's the magic. It's not the business model. It's not this other thing. It's that. And so rather than building it in the conventional way around where the profit center is, you have to build it around the person. This was the this was the insight of Phil Jackson when he came to the Bulls. You know, Westbrook was a great coach. He's turned out to be one of the greatest coaches ever. But he had a system and Michael Jordan played defense, right? And all and all that Phil Jackson did was come in and say, we're now going to build this around this guy, right? So if you're going to have a practice and somebody's really creative and that's the secret sauce, you have to build practice around it, right? Doesn't mean they're there. It's not a one man show. It's not one woman show. It's not that. It's that you're understanding what the special proposition is. This is what I went through with Bob Quinn. I mean, you could try to, to turn blue in the face to replicate Bob Quinn. There's only one Bob Quinn. And he's a very special person. So the issue is the way we would do things is we'd build everything around Bob. That makes sense. So the notion was it's the Bob show. And then we all do the things that Bob doesn't do. <laughs> you know, and I'm sure it creates the Jeff show in some ways, right? You know, I didn't mean to marginalize all the yeah. conversation here, but it's kind of like that's the whole thing is built around that. And I think what happens is there's a lot of, there's a lot of business that goes to other people, a lot of goodwill, a lot of prosperity that gets spread around if you think that way. Conventional thinking, you build around the structure. The way I'm suggesting is you build around what's special about you and your brother and your friend. Well, you know, what seems interesting to me is, you know, getting a copy of the book and like you said, treating them maybe less like a recipe and more like skills and just like itemizing because three months from now or six months from now, it'll be a different thing that we'd, we'd be putting through that. And asking all the questions and forcing ourselves to think about it from a new perspective. You know, it's almost like a, you know, a consultant on paper you can have access to at any point, huh? Or it's the next generation of consulting, you know, and as the more you bring peers in, when you figure out in your collaborative open innovation network in your coin, the more you figure out who knows, the more other people help other people. That's and now, now you're a community, right? You have a community. And I think that's what makes the Innovatrium. That's what it's about. What makes the Innovatrium valuable is not Jeff. Standing, what makes innovation valuable is the community. I love it. Well, everybody, go to Amazon.com, get your own copy of the Creative Mindset: Mastering Six Skills That Empower Innovation. And and guys, thanks for for so much time here. Yes, thanks great. for having us on. Really Thank appreciate you. it. That's awesome. Bye, everyone.